This Kendra is where they make their mark. This is the time where you've got to turn the table. You've got to take advantage and ride this wave in this momentum. Look out! Hello there and welcome to our match preview podcast. Callum Williams alongside Kindra D. St. Aubin. The button presser is Morgan Lubin as always. It's freezing, it's cold, isn't it? The snow is coming down here in the Swin Cities. Um, let's hope it doesn't affect anything to do with Minnesota United. I know they've been training in a brand new bubble up at NSC. Um, so hopefully they've been okay there. They've been training indoors, but no doubt about it. This snow and moving into Kinder, what will be the latest regular season in Major League Soccer history. We are going to run into little issues like this, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And I mean, you know, you can say as much as you want that Minnesotans are used to this and and uh, people and players are used to playing in the snow. I played quite a few games in college in the snow and, you know, where the ball rolls around in the snow and it looks like Saturn because it's got a ring around it and your feet are frozen. But it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't make it enjoyable. It just means that you've done it before. And um, as much as we like to think also it's a home field advantage, I'm not sure if it is because, um, you know, I mean, Houston came here last weekend. It was 25 degrees when the game started. We didn't have any snow. We didn't have any sleep, but it was freezing cold. And we end up with a 2-2 draw. And I think that the heat is more difficult to play in the cold. And um, Minnesota, you know, on another thing of 2020, I think it's the earliest snowfall in 100 years. <laughs> and it wasn't just one snowfall. <laughs> it was like seven inches. And then it was sleeting again today. It is supposed to be, you know, a high, the highest we get over the next 10 days is like 38. So we'll see um, where this goes. I know the, the crew is taking care of the field as we're looking at it right now and, and watching them put on some tarps and things. So I think the field will be in great shape. It'll just be whether or not the, the team is in great shape. But yes, training indoors, I'm sure they're all appreciative of it right now. What is it like playing in snow? You, you mentioned it just then. It, it, it can't be the easiest thing to do in the world. No, I mean, it's terrible, honestly. I mean, thank goodness for the technology these days with the heating of the field. So the actual snow on the field itself is going to be minimal, and the field itself is heated at, what, 65 degrees or something. But just the cold that you feel in your feet, because the rest of your body, you can layer up, you and, you know, you end up getting sweaty, and then you go in and you're cold, and then you come back out, hopefully with a fresh, dry uniform, much like when you are dealing with, you know, downpouring of rain. But your feet and your hands, you can only do so much. And I always really struggled with my feet because even once you get moving and your blood gets flowing and you're running around and you're warming up, it's just, you know, kicking a ball when your foot is half frozen does not feel well or getting a ball drilled at your thigh or your leg or, you know, anything just feels a little bit, um, it's just a little bit sharper and a little bit more painful when it happens. Mentally, once you get going, you're fine. You know, you're running around, your, your head is in the game. Um, you're focused on that. You're not focused on how cold you're feeling at the time, but yeah, you, you get that rare knock or that rare contact or the ball or whatever it might be. And it doesn't feel good in your feet. Um, it's just tough because everybody knows how tight soccer players boots are your shoes. There's no room in there, um, but a thin little sock. So it's, it's a challenge. I don't know what it's supposed to be in Cincinnati. It's so strange because I just assume when it's like this in Minnesota, that it's kind of like this in the Midwest and even the East coast, it was 70 degrees in New York the other day (laughs) when we were getting seven inches of snow, which seems really strange to me because usually they get something similar to what we get. Um, 
but nonetheless, you know what? It's it's 20 flipping 20. That's all we can say at this point with the forecast and the weather and the temperature and the conditions. And thank goodness for the the full-size bubble that is up at Blaine now that the team can train in properly and, you know, punt a ball and, and play the full length and, and the full width of the stadium or of a field and, and hopefully get get good practice in this week. Finally, a full week of training before another match. Our producer, Morgan Lupin, has just shown me. This is uh, former Cincinnati resident, Morgan Lupin, by the way. Um, 79 degrees Good Cincinnati. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. This, yeah. and, and this always makes me laugh, obviously, not being from this part of mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. The severity in the weather and the changes, it, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. As a coach, Kindra, how, how do you even begin to plan for, for this kind of weather? Because one week you're planning to play in essentially sub-zero temperatures, and the next week you're going to play in 79 degrees. It, it surely must play its part. I think it does because, you know, as much as, again, mentally you try to prepare and physically you try to prepare and, and know what's coming at you, honestly, at least in 2020, I think that's all you have to say is it is what it is, and you're moving on to the next thing because it is so crazy. And even though we know these temperature swings happen in regular times, in regular situations when it's not 2020, and we've had this this craziness where, you know, you play in Minnesota and it's snowing and sleeting, and then maybe you take a trip to L.A. or Houston or Dallas or Orlando or Cincinnati in this case, and it's 80 degrees. Um, but I think ultimately the, the players will welcome that warm-up. They'll welcome that change. They'll appreciate the fact that it's 79, uh, hopefully, um, by the time Saturday rolls around and not 25 degrees with the wind chill and your your boots being wet and cold. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely plays a part. I think it more plays a part from a um, – a lung perspective, you go from training and, and running in warm weather to cold weather in the, the temperature train. That's to me when people get colds, when all of a sudden your body temperature is going back and forth and you have a tendency to just, you know, not feel great, not feel well when you're doing those quick swings and, and especially flying a day of game, there is no adjustment period. You know, you basically get off the plane, they go to the hotel, they have a meal and then they arrive at the stadium. So we'll see what happens on Saturday. 71 degrees, we're told, on Saturday at Cincinnati, but still much better than what it is. 61. This is a gamer play. Just putting all sorts. 51, 51. Our producer, Morgan Lewis. Well, that'll feel uh, great. Yes, you know what? Yes. Going back to the last few matches where we had those fall-like temperatures, whether it was Nashville or Columbus or even here in Minnesota, I mean, there were certain players like Aroma Metzenaire and some of these guys that looked like they could run all day. And I think that 51 degrees at 50, the fall temperature that we're supposed to be having in Minnesota right now, we are like 20 some degrees below normal. Um, that's the kind of temperature that you feel like you can literally run in all day long. You get warm enough during warmups, but you don't overheat. And then you get, you don't get cold enough that you're freezing your tush off out there. So I think that'll, that'll feel good for Minnesota United, especially after week after training and hopefully everybody healthy, fit and ready to go. So 51 degrees in Cincinnati. That was hilarious. Our producer Morgan living behind the glass. <laughs> like I was, was on Price is Right or something. Well, I was going to say, he was like one of those people that, you know, when they pretend they're in the glass and just putting up the... <laughs> like a mime. Like, yes, yeah. <laughs> that was hilarious. Anyway, right. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, no doubt, Kindra, this has been a testing time for Minnesota United because of the positive cases of COVID that have been within the camp. Um, Minnesota United this week, as far as we're aware, obviously we're not up at training at the moment because we have to stay away from the players and quite rightly so. Um, 
this will be perhaps the most normal week they've had in a long time. How much will that help from not only a physical point of view, but a psychological point of view moving forward? You know, I think that there's going to be an energy about the club at training this week if everybody is fully fit and, and ready to go. I, I believe Jan Gregus will be back and available um, for the match. I don't know when he's able to start training with the team from his quarantining from international duty and things like that. Um, and Ozzy Alonso, again, fully back fit and healthy and, and came in the game, as we know, for Sonny Dotson and um, aside from the the season-ending injuries, everybody should be fit and healthy and ready to go. And I would hope that there's an energy about the team knowing that they have a full week of regular preparation and they're playing a team that they just faced a couple of weeks ago in FC Cincinnati and trying to capitalize on that moment. Again, a team that's nearly at the bottom of the table in the Eastern Conference, and you're kind of drowning in your sorrows right now because, let's be fair, I mean, that Houston game felt like a loss. It was three points that were completely should have been. You're, you're up to nothing in the first half. Like, there should have been no doubt about it. You're at home. You didn't have to travel. Yes, you have some absences, but ultimately you should still win that game. And they're going to be kind of, you know, wanting some redemption from that. And um, they're going to hit the road and face the Cincinnati team. But having a full week of normal preparation, normal regen, normal film watching, normal training, normal amount of time to work on tactical, on set pieces, whatever it is. Nothing's rushed. Nothing's crammed together. Everybody ready to go. Um, so Cincinnati on Saturday should be a welcome a welcome match for Minnesota United. Yeah, we'll feature the next opponent for Minnesota United, FC Cincinnati, in the next segment. We may very well talk about a couple of MLS players going to a peculiar place in the Middle East as well. You and I have been speaking about that, so we'll talk about that in the second segment. For now, though, you mentioned it, Houston Dynamo. Minnesota were up by two goals to nil. I know it's, in inverted commas, the most dangerous scoreline in football, but <laughs> when they are as comfortable as they seemed, you simply can't give away what they did. And you use the word disappointment when talking about the game. I think that's probably the perfect word, especially when you're within your own home walls as well. You simply have to win games like this. And we said it on the Sound of the Loons podcast the other day. It's simply not good enough for Minnesota United. It's not. And, you know, I honestly can go back and look at that game. And aside from Ethan finish, Finley finishing the two chances and rightly so dominating the man of the match voting, I think he had 90% or something like that with those two beautiful goals. Aside from that, go down the list. And was there any or any part of that game, a performance that really stood out to you that, you know, you're like, you know what, we didn't do this well, but we did this, this, and this well. And I think if, you know, Adrian Heath, and we'll talk to him later today in our media availability, would probably say the same thing, even going back and looking at the tape. Sometimes he goes back and looks at the film and says, hey, it wasn't as bad as I thought. But I think this is going to be one of those where you're disappointed in the performance, not just the result, but the performance, because there were so many things, even though you hadn't trained as a group, hardly, for the last two weeks, he said there was an energy about the group once they finally did get back, even though they were in small-sided training with, with groups of five, there was an energy about the team getting back on the pitch, getting back together again, being at home, hosting the Houston Dynamo, a team that you you know has your number when you're down in Houston. But this was a game that was sheer disappointment for me. And, you know, you and I walked out of the stadium together and you just kind of are scratching your head like, what, what did we just witness here? Because that's the, been the challenge for me, even this entire season of 2020, is just the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, the the bit of inconsistency from this club. And that's what makes great teams great is when you can consistently put together performances 
that you're executing the right way, that everything on the pitch doesn't have to go perfectly, but you're doing the right things at the right time, making the decisions, you're locking it down. Somebody on the team maybe puts the team on their back, on their shoulders. There wasn't that in the game against Houston Dynamo. They were missing a true number 10 that really kind of took hold of the game and said, this is what we are doing and created it. And if he didn't create and pass, he took it upon himself to get the goal, to spark the offense, whatever it might be. And I think that was missing in that Houston game. And, and to allow Houston at Allianz Field to come back when you're up to nothing, um, it shouldn't happen. Even if you're missing some players, even if, you know, you haven't trained in a couple weeks, quite honestly, it, it just shouldn't happen. It can't happen. And I'm sure they they all felt the same way going into that locker room after the game. How much responsibility does Kevin Molino have to take given the circumstances and given the fact that he was given that number 10 role and and for a we, we've seen it over the years Kendra when when he's on his game when he fancies it he's borderline unplayable but when when he's not getting involved in the game it, it simply doesn't work and you mentioned it Minnesota did lack somebody who really wanted to take the game by the scruff of the neck and, and you would expect with Molino's experience and his statistical numbers him to be that individual and he didn't do it against Houston yeah, and you know what? You know, I I love Kevin Molino as a player with his skill and his technical ability. And his actually, he has a real joy for the game. You know, even when he's going into a tackle or someone, you know, fouls him, he always gets up with a smile on his face, a little bit of a wry smile, you know, kind of poking the bear kind of thing with the opposition. And when he does have the ball at his feet, when he's on, he is on. And you're right, he is nearly unplayable. But then he also massive chunks and moments when he disappears from the game. He disappears from the individual matches or maybe he can't stay healthy and he's just not even fit to play. And the again, going back to the inconsistency factor, I mean, this is one of the guys in MLS that I feel like could truly be one of the top five or ten players, bar none, not just in his position but altogether and what he can create and what he can do from a goal-scoring, goal-creating perspective. And unfortunately, in my opinion, he doesn't have – that fiery, competitive nature about him. And I don't know Kevin, you know, deep down personally. I, you know, it's not like I've spent a lot of time with him. I can't hear everything he's saying on the pitch. He's not a yeller and a screamer. We all know that. He, he goes about his leadership in a different manner than some others that you can hear from the other end of the pitch. But I think that there is something about it that um, when he is surrounded by better players, he plays better and he's more more creative he has a spark he has an energy a, a pep in his step almost when we've seen him on the field with Renoso, with robin lud you know when ethan finley is out there and healthy um i think that that was missing and that's what adrian heath needs from him is when those guys aren't out there when everybody else isn't having their best game you what are you going to do to make this offense go what are you going to do to make things click and if it's not slotting a ball through it's taking it yourself it's doing something it's demanding more from your teammates um and from yourself and i just you know it's unfortunate because kevin has it he has it in his abilities but we just don't see it often enough from him and he was one of those players that needed to take hold of that game with the two goals that minnesota conceded in your mind and from what you saw, what went wrong on those particular plays? Well, first of all, I think Minnesota ultimately is fortunate to come away with a point because the way Houston Dynamo was putting on the pressure and particularly in the second half and the chances that they were creating some of the saves that Dane Sinclair had to make, um, they're fortunate in the sense that they didn't 
end up with no points at home, that they didn't give up a 3-2 victory for Houston Dynamo. You know, I mean, again, it's turnovers in midfield. It's balls going the other way. It's a breakout by the Houston Dynamo. So to me, it wasn't a defensive breakdown really on either goal. It was more of a midfield attacking perspective. Maybe somebody's not holding the ball up top. Maybe a bad square ball in the middle of the pitch. Maybe holding on the ball one too many touches and not taking a look over your shoulder before the ball goes the other way. And and credit to Houston Dynamo for actually capitalizing on their chances, much like Minnesota did with their two goals in the first half. Poor play by the Houston Dynamo. Minnesota gets the ball, they go the other way, and they capitalize on a quick out, on a nice run in by, you know, Ethan Finley, on a ball in by Ja'Cory Hayes, whatever it might be. It was almost like Houston, you know, took what Minnesota did in the first half and did the same to them in the second. Because, again, it's, it's I think, you know, it's the build-up play, and it's just being aware, making the right decisions. And Adrian, he said at postgame, too many mistakes, too many bad decisions, and some of that comes with tired legs you know, which invariably leads to bad decisions, bad choices, bad passes, not making the right run, not making the, you know, movement off the ball to provide an outlet for your teammate. Um, Roma Metzenero was caught out of positions a couple times on the right-hand side because he's doing what he can to get forward, but then no one's back on that right-hand side to defend. Um, so I think that, you know, ultimately Minnesota United is going to look back at that Houston Dynamo game and and be fortunate that they got a point. Um Upset that they didn't get three, but then at the same time, also maybe thinking the lucky stars that one of those other chances that Houston created in the second half didn't go in. There's just, there wasn't really anything good about that game aside from the two goals that Ethan Finley scored and the balls that were played in behind him on the breakout, you know, or to him, I should say. Other than that, it felt like there were a lot of elements from the front line to back line that just weren't quite clicking. Yeah, before we talk about those Ethan Finlay goals and have you break them down, we'll go back to an incident that occurred early in the game and it was the red card that never was yeah. for Adam Lundqvist. Um, at the time, our monitors caught it, uh, our coverage and our cameras caught the challenge from Lundqvist. Um, no malice behind it. It's just completely late. It's one of them where, where he's obviously dove in and, and Dotson has probably the ball away. Um, but the more you look at it, the more nasty it, it does look. And you have to you have to ask yourself here, Kay, because to our knowledge, the referees had a look at it. The VAR officials had a look at it. When they look at it and they see what's happened, and I was told by um, Steve McPherson on the Sound of the Loons podcast yesterday that... Um, when he's sitting up in the press room um, during the game, he's right next to the VAR room. And it was obvious as soon as they went and had a look at it, you could hear the ooh and the groans. So if they've seen that, how are they not issuing a red card in that situation? You know, and in real time, and even watching the replay as Hassani was down on the field, I wasn't instantly like red card. You know, but as you continue to watch the replay, which the VAR has the ability to do, and they are specifically looking for that instance, whereas you and I are kind of trying to, you know, analyze what happened and pick up on the on the play in the game and, and not trying to speculate and trying to kind of get word on what they are looking at, if they yes. are looking at anything. We have a lot of things going on. But, you know, at first instant, I'm like, absolute yellow, right decision, that needs to be a card. And now you can almost look back, and sometimes you can tell a lot by the body language on the player that committed the foul 
I mean, he, he was, I don't know if he legitimately was apologetic and felt really bad about injuring Hassani Dotson, or if it was more that he realized that he was going to go over and continuously apologize. So he doesn't get a red card and really show that, you know, it there was no malice in it, but it was late. It was from behind. It was straight legged. It was studs up. It was no ball. I mean, Hassani's ankle goes completely sideways and under, and you can see the grimace on Hassani's face. I mean, if that's not a red card and we, and if we didn't have VAR, maybe that's excusable because then you can say, well, you know, first glance, they don't have the replay. We get to look at it a hundred times, whatever. There is no excuse for that not to be a red card. And then I, I was texting with the two of you saying, well, okay, the disco, they can look at it. Can a red card be given retroactively? And to my knowledge, nothing has been done. Unless I am I no I no you're something. right I, I think there's been discussions but but the thing is here is that okay if he's been awarded a red card for later on well it doesn't make a blind bit of difference really because it doesn't affect the game no you know? it didn't it didn't and you're right he was able to stay in the match they're not a man down there's all sorts of things that you know come from it being given at the time but at least you feel like there's some sort of justification after the fact for the gruesome nature of the of the tackle and just the laziness of it quite honestly because he knew he knows Lundqvist knew he was beaten he knew that Hassani died and had tapped the ball away and had a step. I mean, he comes in late from behind in the middle of the pitch um, with his studs up and his legs straight and straight into a guy's ankle. I mean, he's lucky that Asani Dotson didn't break his ankle mm. and he's not done for the year. I mean, we don't even know for sure what the extent of his injury is, but we have not been told it's been broken or anything like that. And, you know, he tried to play on it again. He tried to run around on it. And then he, you know, smartly sat down because he knows that he wasn't First of all, he couldn't go. And second of all, he couldn't be useful to his teammates at that point in the position of that holding midfielder. So, yeah, it doesn't do any good after the fact to give a red. But I would feel a little bit better knowing that they they looked at it again. They did what they're supposed to do. They went about the proper channels and, um, you know, and he's and he's punished going forward. And maybe he'll think twice next time a tackle like that comes up. Yeah, no break of the ankle to yep. our knowledge. Yep. Um, but I was told uh, yesterday, I believe, um, it's it's swollen yep. quite badly mm-hmm. um, and there is bruising. So we don't know this, but one would probably assume it would be a little too soon for him to come onto the field against FC Cincinnati unless there is um, Some a major recovery. Drug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, don't know, okay. I don't know how he could possibly play this weekend, but, you know, stranger things have happened, I guess. would be very surprised. What's the worst injury you've ever had? You know, what's funny is I, I mean, I bashed my head open in college. I think I've shown you guys that picture when yes. I cracked heads with somebody <laughs> and you could see the bone of my eyebrow. But other than that, that was pretty much it. And my eye swelled shut for a couple of days. Um, but then I was able to play after, I mean, aside from I couldn't head the ball. Mm. But other than that, no, I have not had any major injuries. I've been knock on wood. And now I just don't want to get injured being old. Um, I've, I've been really fortunate. Never tore a knee, never broke a bone. Like... You know, I don't know. Very lucky. I I love the way that you say that's pretty much it as you essentially (laughs) split your head open and you can see the bone. Dear me. Um, Okay, before we go to break, um, just talk to me about those two Ethan Finlay goals. How good were those finishes? Well, first of all, and I think I said it during the broadcast, like that is why you love Ethan Finlay is for his runs. Right. I mean, he's not the most technically gifted player. He's not the most talented player with the ball at his feet. He's not going to dribble and spin you around and do these magical things. But he 
first of all, he's going to work his tail off. You know that. But he is so smart with his runs and his ability to kind of check back, sneak in behind, run along the back line, stay in an onside position, time his runs perfectly. Maybe he's running across and then he goes towards the goal, the way he breaks off his runs. Just reading the play, reading what is going on behind him so he puts himself in the position to be most dangerous. And sometimes it's just to be a dummy run. It's to create something for somebody else by tucking in and then Romine overlaps, whatever it might be. He is so good at reading the game, and that's what he did on both those goals. It's working his tail off, making himself available. They win the ball at midfield. They go out on transition. He finds himself in the spot to be available on the play and to finish it. And his two goals were phenomenal. I mean, they were tough angles. They were difficult situations, and he puts him in the corner. He puts him where the goalkeeper can't get it. Um, And that is why, you know, as much as people, you know, Ethan Finley had that tremendous year in Columbus where he had, you know, double-digit goals and assists. I don't know if we'll ever see that again. But this is a player that um, will always give you everything he's got. He's competitive. He's fiery. Maybe sometimes a little bit, maybe too much for some of his teammates liking, but you can't fault him for that. Um, I'd rather have it that way than the other way. And the goals were brilliant and, and really smart finishes by him. Just calm, composed. When he put himself in a position to get on the end of it, didn't fumble it, didn't stumble over his feet, over the ball and just put it in a place where the goalkeeper couldn't get it on both chances. And um, well done by Ethan Finley, and welcome back to the lineup. Yeah, looking sharp once again, isn't he, Ethan Finley? Okay, stay with us. Still plenty more coming your way after the break. We'll talk some MLS transfers and preview the next opponent for Minnesota United, FC Cincinnati. While team sports may be sidelined right now, team spirit is going strong. Alina Health and Minnesota United have teamed up to support the frontline caregivers at Alina Health. Learn how you can help by visiting alinahealth.org forward slash caring for caregivers. And a very warm welcome back to our match preview podcast. Callum Williams alongside Kindred D. St. Auburn. Before we talk about the next opponents, FC Cincinnati and some other MLS headlines, let's go down a path that we haven't for a long, long time, maybe even ever. Let's talk about Asian football, shall we? And the sudden attraction to a lot of Major League Soccer players. Maybe I'm being a little naive here, Kendra, and assuming the reason why several very big MLS players um, have gone, and possibly even more have gone to Saudi Arabia, is because they're not short of a dime or two over there. Um, There's got to be more to it than that, though, surely. Honestly, you know, and that's why I texted you this morning. I was like, what is going on with Saudi Arabia and and MLS players all of a sudden? And I know, you know, we were just talking about and kind of going down the list. It was Javinko um, when I believe you said it was the end of 2018. Jovinko went at the end of 2018 to Al Hilal. So let's go through the list. So Jovinko left. Um, Mitricha has gone on loan from New York City to Al Ahli. Safia Taider has left Montreal Impact to go to Al Ain. Pity Martinez has gone to Al Nasur. And now we're hearing possibly Nicolas Ladero will be joining Jovinko at Al Hilal. Um, again, it, 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 to me, it, it shows that there's a level of ambition in Saudi Arabia. They're wanting to bring some some big time players over because again, let's not let's not forget Pity Martinez was the South American footballer of the year before he came to Major League Soccer. Um, it shows that Major League Soccer can be a selling league again. Just if you're a selling league, you don't necessarily need to to sell to the, the big leagues around the world. If there's money coming in, then then I think that's okay. But what do we think about this as a whole, Kindred? Because at the end of the day, it's okay to be a selling league, but do you really want to be losing the likes of Mitricha, Taider, 
Pitti Martinez and possibly now Nico Ladero to a league like the Saudi Arabian top flight? Well, and I think that's the challenge for me is not just from a league and from an individual team perspective, but even from a player perspective. We talked about how weird of a, a path is that for Pitti Martinez to be the yes. South American player of the year. And then you come over here to MLS and then you go to a Saudi Arabian club and where that was supposed to be your jump to an English club, right? I mean, that's why a lot of players come here now and we are seeing the influx of, of talented players to MLS and then selling on to some of the English clubs or some of the better leagues around the world, Bundesliga, etc. So I think that's a little bit of a shocker. And I, I, I think that the clubs have to be smart in the sense of what is the fascination right now? What are your short-term and long-term goals? Because your short-term goal is going to be the money, right? I mean, you're getting an influx of cash, but at the same time, from an outward perspective, from a team and a league, do you want to be selling to Saudi Arabia or you do want to be selling to the English Premier League? Do you mm -hmm. want to be selling to Bundesliga? Do you want me to sell, you know, Syria, whatever it might be, La Liga, all these different things. Like, would you rather be known as a league that is now selling, but you're selling your players to the top leagues around the world and you can't just be tempted by the cash? And I don't know that that's an, that's a problem MLS has never had. Right. I mean, before, if you had a, a, a team from any country coming and offering you that kind of money for a player, you were going to take it. No hesitations, no questions asked like, hey, we can sell on a player. Absolutely. No question. But now I think they do have to be. And, and it's a good thing that they can be maybe a little bit more picky on who they are selling on to with yes. these players. We also don't know all their personal situations. I mean, we heard that Matricha, you know, wanted to go be closer to his wife. They were having their first child. And this was a good move for him at this time. That's what, you know, was kind of in the in the news. So from an individual perspective, we don't know what everyone's personal situations are and why they might want to go to those clubs as opposed to others. But I do think um, MLS, it's a good problem to have that you have to even look at that now and think about it. Is this the right league we want to sell on to as an individual, as a team? Um, or... Is it just, again, about the influx of cash, the influx of money as you continue to try to go and, and try to grow this league and then you have that money to go buy another player? You open up an international slot, likely, depending on the player that you're selling on. And can you go get another young, talented player that down the stretch you turn around and you can, and you can sell for more money? But it was just shocking to me because this Javinko one, it was kind of like I forgot about it. It was a couple sure. years ago. It was kind of weird. He was living it up in Toronto all of a sudden. You know, he's bailing and going to Saudi Arabia. But now... When you see three, four, you know, plus guys that are going to these leagues, um, you have to kind of wonder what's going on all of a sudden. What's this infatuation with these Saudi Arabian clubs in MLS players? I'm more looking at it from the Saudi Arabian aspect rather than the MLS aspect, because I do think that um, MLS would, you know, can appreciate the foreign leagues. But why Saudi Arabia all of a sudden really kind of infiltrating MLS and seeing the talent that is here and wanting those players there. Well, we can only speculate, can't we? And I would assume that the individuals in Saudi Arabia must look at Major League Soccer very fondly. Sure. Um, but like you said, it, it, it does pose a question, doesn't it, to Major League Soccer? Do they want to have that reputation of selling to a league like that? Or do they want to um, keep hold of the players and, and, and hold out for a bigger buyer? But... Um, it, it's an intriguing proposition for Major League Soccer at the moment because, it, it, again, it's evidence of continued growth because things like this wouldn't have happened yep. 10 years ago, no mm -hmm. doubt about it. But I, I wonder as, as a player as well, and also I do wonder as well, 
the money that that to our knowledge that is being offered for for these types of players i mean particularly i mean pity martinez atlanta united made a profit i believe yes. it was 18 million dollars mm-hmm. they sold him for mm-hmm. in a 2020 covid ridden world as well where let's be honest we're we're going to be very surprised if any major league soccer franchise is making a profit this year is it too much to turn down in this current climate well, not only that, but if you look at that list of players, I mean, none of those players, except for maybe Nico Ladero, who's, who's not even confirmed, but just rumors, really were blowing the doors off of their current club and their current climate and their current situation. I mean, Peter Martinez, if if anything, it had probably the worst year and a half of his career when, you know, coming over to Atlanta United as the South American player of the year. And Tidare had, a, you know, I mean, he's had a decent run of form, but nothing that's crazy. So if all of a sudden these clubs are seeing this opportunity, as you said, especially in 2020, to sell these players for likely a profit or likely some sort of a significant cash or money influx, you might be jumping at that in this current climate. Maybe if this was a different year and this wasn't 2020 and you had your sold out stadiums and everything else, nothing wonky going on with the schedule. Um, maybe you would hesitate. Maybe you would hold out for a different league and a different buyer in a different time. But that could very well be a, a huge aspect of it. It's just you're going to jump at that chance because who knows when that buyer is going to come along again, especially for a player that's not crushing it in their current environment. Whilst we're on the subject of international football, Kay, I just want to get your thoughts on this as an American a record-setting amount of North Americans involved in the Champions League this year. I believe there were 10 from the United States um, and then 12 overall with uh, Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies making up the the Canadian contingency. Um, This is clearly a good sign for US soccer. Um, I was having a debate with somebody the other day about this potentially being the most exciting time ever for U.S. soccer because never before have we seen this amount of of American and North American players at this level at at a European competition and at this level in Europe. Sure, we've seen players that have gone and played in Sweden and Denmark and a handful in in England and a few in Germany and whatnot. It's becoming the expectation now because of the the rising quality of football in, in this part of the world. But did anybody ever think that we would have, at at this stage in the growth of American soccer, did anybody think we would have as many representing North America? Sorry, you might hear the... uh, (laughs) Grounds crew. You might hear the grounds crew at the moment. They're just looking after the field, so you'll have to ignore that. Apologies. Um, Did we? Did we ever think that this would be the case in American soccer, that we'd have this many, and and young players as well? It's not like these are are players that have gone over there... um, just for a, a kickabout, you know, in, in Sweden or Denmark or what have you, they're playing for established clubs like Barcelona and Juventus. And, and um, I know they're not majorly established in Europe, but even seeing the emotion that Ethan Hovarth had mm-hmm. the other day playing for, mm-hmm. for Club Brugge, it was, mm-hmm. it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and once again, Kindred, I guess my point here is that North American soccer is becoming a part of the furniture in world football, which is ultimately a good thing. Well, first of all, I love the fact that you're seeing these Americans and young Americans succeeding in other countries in soccer. Because first, you know, I don't know if you saw Jesse Marsh's quotes the other day. Yes, I did, yes. Um, and talking about the situation with Christian Pulisic and how he's kind of behind the eight ball because he's an American trying to play at a big club. I mean, and, and nothing Jesse Marsh said was wrong. And I'm not saying that the, the perception of Americans in soccer – leading into maybe the last 18 months or two years or or so wasn't correct as well because 
you know, there is an element of needing to prove yourself and, and get the respect over there and establish yourself and prove that you can do it at that level because it had been done so rarely by Americans in those other leagues. But honestly, you know what? As I hear you ramble off about all those players and list all those players and all those talented players that are in all these other leagues around the world right now, you know what the only thing I can think of the entire time is? What are they going to do for the national team? Honestly, I mean, I love that they're doing that for these clubs and it's fantastic experience and it's huge representation for American soccer, for soccer in this country and the level it is raised to and the talent it can produce. But I really want to see how Burhalter puts this together for the men's national team because right. ultimately that is the stage you are going to be judged on, judged on as an American male football player in this country. What have you done for me lately for the men's national team? insane amounts of young talent on this that you could have on this roster moving forward going in the next this next world cup cycle what is Burhalter going to do with this influx of incredible talent and some of it's been there the last couple cycles but they were younger they weren't in the same position they are now they're going to come back from these clubs with loads of confidence soaring flying high how does Burhalter put it together and where does this team and the united states go from a men's national team perspective because that's what i'm really looking forward to love that they're getting the attention love seeing them in champions league love seeing them and all these leagues are playing around the world but what are they going to do when they come back here for their next camp and they play in these friendlies or they get all together again and they perform with the crest on their jersey for the united states of america that's what i'm interested in seeing yeah. i'm excited about it right right and to our knowledge the friendlies that the u.s had planned to play against australia and new zealand have been cancelled and i know they are looking to find an opponent in europe um i know greg berhalter had said in the last um press availability that he was looking to perhaps give the European-based players opportunities over the course of, of the next few games anyway. I um, I wonder, Morgan, how long have we got left, I wonder? <laughs> Should we go down this... Let's, go, let's, let's at least dip our toe in this rabbit hole, shall we? 13 minutes, we've got plenty of time. Okay, let's dip our toe in this rabbit hole. As an American, obviously we see the strides Major League Soccer is making. You and I are immensely proud of, of what Minnesota United has become and playing an Allianz field and seeing what it's like. Um, but we mentioned this earlier on about Major League Soccer becoming a selling league. Is that, is that an, for, as an American, is that an okay identity to have? Because I, I know so many people in this country who want to be the absolute best, mm -hmm. which is fine. What is it going to take for Major League Soccer to reach that level of description. Is it, the reason I bring this up, is it a load of these young Americans going to play in Europe and, and having their their say in the Champions League and whatnot, and then potentially coming back at some stage, much like what, what a Michael Bradley did several mm -hmm. years ago? Mm -hmm. Or would you prefer them to stay in Major League Soccer? Um, first of all, and this may rub a lot of people the wrong way, I don't know, but... I, but MLS will never be what some of those leagues are in other countries. You don't think? I don't. Why? I just don't. Because the first of all, maybe if we maybe if we go down the road another hundred years. Sure. I mean, it's the history of it. It's the culture of it. I'm not saying that you can't have quality players here. Clearly, they already do. In the last five years, especially, you know, since the whole Beckham effect went in into play. But then slowly but surely, you had an increase of an influx of a player here, a player that you look at the quality of players that are coming into this league now. And whether you sell them on or not, I don't even care. Diego Rossi, Christian Pavone, Pity Martinez, you but, know. But purely from an American player perspective, yeah. though. 
Oh, I mean, well, I, I'm I'm okay with them continuing to go over and play in those other leagues. I do think that ultimately that's, if you ask any American here, any American soccer player in the United States of America, what is your dream currently? What do you think it probably is? Yeah, they'll say they want to go and play Champions League football. Exactly. Absolutely, yes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I really don't. I mean, I think that, you know, it's about challenging yourself. It's about raising it to the next level. And right now that is what it is. The next level is there. And I, if they want to come back here, Clint Dempsey, you know, Tim Howard, whoever go down the list, Michael Bradley of American players that have gone and, and tested themselves in other places, been successful in other places and other leagues and come back here. And then they also light MLS on fire. I'm all for that. You know, I, I think that's the position that this country is in when it comes to soccer. Can they continue to grow? Can they continue to blossom at MLS in the last 10 years? My goodness, it's leaps and bounds from where it was. I don't even know if anybody thought that it would be where it is today, um, you know, 10 years ago, 25 years ago when the league came into play. But ultimately, I just think that that's a little bit unattainable. It's like asking another country, how do you get to be the best baseball country in the world? And now Dominican, Venezuela, you can talk about some of those other smaller countries, but one of the major ones, you know, I mean, how do you get football to survive in England, American football? You know, I just think that sometimes you have to realize what you are and continue to achieve and advance within your own setting, within your own self. And you have these goals and you get these quality South Americans, you get players coming over from England, from Europe, from, you know, wherever they might be coming from and playing here. And whether you're selling them on or they're coming maybe a little bit later in their career, as long as they're advancing the quality of this league when they're here, I'm fine with that. I'm all for that. You're putting butts in the seats when we can have butts in the seats and you're advancing the level of play, the quality of play, the intrigue, you're advancing what MLS is around the world in other countries. And if Americans want to grow up here, learn to play the game here and then have their dream of it going and, and playing on in another country. I, I don't have any, I, I see nothing wrong with that because I do think all it does is raise the level here in the United States ultimately okay. or Canada. Yes. Well, what we'll do, uh, maybe hit us up on Twitter if you want us to continue that discussion because we are rapidly I'm running sure out of time. I'm sure I'll probably get slammed by some by, you know, saying that MLS is never going to be what English Premier League is. But if I said it was, I think that'd be foolish. I, I just, I, I, I'm, and that's not a knock on MLS. It's a history of the game and the culture in those other countries of soccer. And what, I mean, you, you've talked about this yourself. Like, you know, people don't go to college you know, they rarely go to university because their their dream is like playing soccer at a young age, right? Yes. You know what I mean? That's their path. It's not going to college soccer here and then getting drafted like it is in the United States for several several players. Yeah, the it's the only is, way in the U.S. It's the only um, country, to my knowledge, that does the collegiate system. Right. And you guys have these academies, which the United States is working towards, right? Yes, MLS yes. is working towards. And we've seen all these young players come out of these academies now, and some of them getting bought at an early age and being sold or developing or playing for a year or two in their own MLS senior team system, like an Aronson. You know, we could go down the list of young players there as well. Busio is on the radar of several. Caden Clark is another one. I mean, so many good young players that are coming through systems now. And that's what it MLS is going to have to do, but you're going to probably have to sell them on and then hope they come back here at some point. Yeah, maybe we'll continue this discussion next week. And as I said, hit us up on, on Twitter, maybe, if this is something you're interested in, um, because I think it's right now with 
Major League Soccer in its 25th year, I think it is an important discussion to, to be had, and I'm not entirely convinced it's been had enough at the moment. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk about it perhaps next week, a little later on. Um, now, though, let's talk about FC Cincinnati and the opponents for Minnesota United. We've already seen them several weeks ago. Um, and, and I said this the other day, Kendra, I thought when they came here to Allianz Field, it was the first time Yapstam had tried this 4-3-3 formation, which to our knowledge he had been desperate to try. Um for, for a long, long time since he'd come in to Cincinnati, he had, what I was told, he had been forced to play with five at the back because he simply didn't think he had the players to play in a 4-3-3. Several of them returned from injury and he seemed a little more comfortable to be able to go and play that 4-3-3 formation. One would assume he'll be even more comfortable doing that when they're playing at home, would he not? I would assume so. But, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, in the Columbus game, which they won... Um, in the hell is real rivalry, they were missing what seven, eight players. I mean, and, and key players from the roster, same thing with the DC United game, which they were missing eight or nine key players from their lineup. Um, and they went with the four, three, three formation. Now, granted that was at home against DC United and, and they're using their third string goalkeeper yes. who had a doozy of a game against DC United, but ultimately, yes, Yapstam is going to, I think, first of all, I think the writing is on the wall for this FC Cincinnati team for 2020. Yapstam knows that they're not going anywhere fast, right? So why not continue to implement your four, three, three, you're, you're, I don't want to say you're sinking with this ship because that's implying that they're not making any progress. I think they are making progress. But the point is, is that as they continue to move forward with the remainder of their season, which is only a handful of games, if they make the playoffs, I think that's a bonus. But ultimately what Yapstam's goal is at the end of 2020, heading into 2021, is the fact that they can play his system. He can continue to work his players in some of the additions that he has made and his general manager has made over the last window or so and, and work on the progression and the consistency and the quality within this current group in the four, three, three system, which is what he ultimately wants to play in the end. So to me, if I'm Yapstam and I'm inside his brain, that's what I'm thinking he's trying to accomplish at this point. And he will play the four, three, three at home, come hell or high water against Minnesota United as they go forward regardless of who's healthy or not because that is what he wants to play in his remainder of time there as manager of FC Cincinnati. Let me ask you as well about Jurgen Locardia. He's obviously come to Major League Soccer with a big reputation. He cost Brighton and Hove Albion in the Premier League via $20 million from PSV Eindhoven several years ago. Um, two goals so far, just one in the regular season, one in the MLS's back uh, tournament knockout rounds in 17 games, I believe. Um, Nowhere near good enough. No, absolutely not. And I don't care if you were the, you know, again, looking at his surrounding cast, who's supporting him. And he's got quality players around him. We're not saying that these are, you know, um, players from that, that can't play the game. I don't even want to compare it to anything because that would be rude to, to other, other leagues and other players. But he has solid MLS players around him. So there is no excuse for him not to get more opportunities, to get more goals. Even if you're playing five in the back and you're not offensive attacking-minded, if you're this FC Cincinnati team and you're Lo Jurgen Locati, you're creating your own. You're getting your own at some point. If you're standing on an island up there by yourself and you're playing direct and you're finding him, you have got to find a way to score more goals than that if you're this team's go-to man, go-to goal scorer. Their offense has been atrocious. 
And um, we saw it here against Minnesota United. And there were bright moments. I think it got better in the second half. But for the most part, you're, it was like they didn't know what they were doing. They were disconnected. They didn't have the pieces flowing. But if you're Jurgen Locati and I'm Yapstam, I would absolutely expect more from a player of that kind of quality to create his own chances and finish them if he's not getting service from his teammates. Let me ask you, if you are a Cincinnati player or a Cincinnati fan, I think this is perhaps more aimed at, what would you make of the GM's comments? Nijkamp came out to the press and, and literally this, this is the quote that he said. In the beginning of my appointment for the club, I spoke already that this project will take several years to build a team who can, complete, who can compete in this league. And it is not by one or two windows, but I think four or five windows. <laughs> what, what do you... How do you digest that if you're a Cincinnati fan? Because essentially what he's saying there is we're nowhere near good enough to compete right now and we won't be for a long time. Yeah, and I think he had to really walk back from that because that was brutal. I mean, when we saw that, it was like, are you joking me? I mean, four or five windows. And then he kind of walked back from it saying, well, look at Minnesota, look at Toronto, look at Philly, look at how these other clubs have done it as, you know, expansion clubs or when they came into the league. It took time. Well, Minnesota United made the playoffs in their third season. So even though they were pretty, pretty awful in 2017, every year you could see improvement. Right now with FC Cincinnati to 2019 to 2020, not a whole lot of improvement and a lot of coaching changes. So if I'm the, the fan base, I'm scratching my head going, what are you talking about, Nycamp? I know this is your second window because you were just brought on, but four or five windows, how long do you expect this fan base to hold on? And not only that, how about the ownership group? We're going to keep forking out money for some of these players, these international players, these DP players, TAM money here and there. And you're expecting this team's not even going to compete for four or five more windows for a few more years. That to me was the biggest word is saying he, they are not going to compete in this league. It's a huge difference to say, Oh, MLS cup, MLS. Yeah. That's a ways off. That's a few years down the road, but to say you aren't even going to compete. That was the word that really caught me off guard, aside from the four or five windows. And I would be fuming. I'd be asking for answers, and, and he should address it. He should answer those questions from the fan base. And quite honestly, I'm sure the ownership was on the phone right away going, what are you talking about over there? Yeah, not great to admit, is it? <laughs> um, okay, before we head off, Kendra, let me get your thoughts on this game from a, a Minnesota United perspective. We're assuming that Asani Dalton won't be available. There's one or two question marks around others as well. What should we expect from the Loons against Cincinnati? Well, I hope to goodness it's a more complete performance than they did against Houston Dynamo. And I know it's on the road, but again, you're against a nearly last place Cincinnati team that's kind of wallowing, trying to figure themselves out has a ton of injuries and I think this is one of those games where you've got to go on the road and get the three points not to mention the fact that there's just not that many games left and I don't even know what is Minnesota right now fourth or fifth position in the current standings after the games the other night we're in fifth position in the Western Conference and I know 10 teams make it this year but every point counts you lose one game and you might be out of the fold you might be below that line somebody else catches fire at the right time this is the kind of games that Minnesota United has got to win. Adrian's going to throw out his best 11 available. Who the heck knows what that, what that is with the injury situation and the health. Glad Ozzy's back in the fold. I thought he did exactly what you expect him to do in that six role. Um, Ja'Cory Hayes still looks good in the central. You got Jan hopefully back in the mix. So to me, it's about scoring goals. Who is going to score the goals? It can't all come from your winger and Ethan Finley. It's got to come from your number nines and let's see what they do.
My thanks to Kendra D. St. Aubin, our producer Morgan Loop, and of course you can see Minnesota United on the road to FC Cincinnati. Join us from 6.30pm on Saturday on Fox Sports North. Of course you can listen right here on Score North as well. From all of us here, have a very good evening. We'll see you on Saturday.